first thing I teach our coaches in our program that we have is something called eudaimonology. So I like to playfully say, if you were thinking ancient wisdom and modern science, and you invited Aristotle as a proxy for ancient wisdom, right? And Martin Seligman, the founder of the positive psychology movement as a proxy for modern science, he said, hey guys, what's the ultimate game we're playing? What's, what's the true meaning of life? Aristotle would answer you in one word. It would be eudaimonia. I, without thinking about it, it's just, this is what he believed. Eudaimonia literally means good soul. We translate it as happiness, but it's a really weak translation. It means something closer to flourishing, actualizing your potential. That's the purpose of life. The summum bonum, he said, the highest good. Uh, you go to Martin Seligman and you say, hey, what do you think, right, Mr. Scientist? You look at his books. His most recent book is called Flourish, which is, he goes from learned optimism, authentic happiness, flourish, which is the English, the better English translation of eudaimonia. It's the same one word answer from our ancient wisdom and modern sciences. Then you say, okay, guys, that's nice. The ultimate purpose is to actualize our potential. How do we do that? Aristotle, again, unequivocally, no hesitation, one word, arete, which if I had to summarize my entire philosophy, I would summarize it in this, arete. We translate that as virtue or excellence, but it has a deeper meaning, something closer to expressing the best within yourself, moment to moment to moment. And as you know, I often talk about the lines. If you're capable of doing, there we go. If you're capable of doing this and you're actually doing that and there's a gap, that's where regret, anxiety, disillusionment, depression exists. When you close the gap, when you live with arte, excellence, virtue, you feel eudaimonia. Now, again, to wrap it up, you go to Seligman and say, what do you think? He says the exact same thing. They started positive psychology by identifying the six core virtues and they say, put your virtues in action. Now it's nuanced. They've got a lot of other ideas, but the under pinning of their entire movement is virtue. So our whole work is that. So if someone wants to fill that gap, because we know a lot of us are living underneath that line, right? We know a lot of us are, are, are sub beneath our eudaimonia. Uh, how do we start taking action or what? Maybe what's the best resource for us start, to start understanding the virtues and then how to start living at that highest level? Well, the first step is you got to realize, you got to identify the game you're playing. So the number one cardinal virtue, and in fact, the virtue, if you're going to boil it down to one virtue, it's wisdom. Everything, every other virtue is basically a facet of wisdom. So courage and self-mastery and love and hope and gratitude and curiosity and zest, which are the ones we focus on. Those are all just expressions of wisdom. Wisdom, as I define it, is knowing the game you're playing and how to play it well. Now, in our modern society, you might have noticed some things are a little wobbly whether it's the pandemic or the political leadership or the social justice issues, you can summarize all of that in one word. It's vicious. It's vice expressed. Now, this isn't new. It's accentuated in our modern world, and particularly right now in 2020. But this is, this is what all philosophers have tried to address across all time. Gandhi walked around with the Bhagavad Gita, which is his Bible and then the Hindu Bible, basically, which is set on a battlefield. It's literally a war with a reluctant warrior, and the war is a metaphor for the internal battle going within us. So between what? Vice and virtue. So when we want to start focusing on this, the first step is to step out of our culture, which again, I would offer is extraordinarily vicious. I mean, what are we doing? We're over-consuming toxic food. We're over-consuming toxic media. What do, you, what do you expect? But what we have in terms of chronic disease and depression, et cetera, when that is the orientation. So the first step of a good philosopher is to pull yourself out of that culture. And again, this isn't new. Epictetus said the same thing 2,000 years ago. Aurelius said the same thing 1,800 years ago, whatever it was. 
But you got to realize the real game that you want to play, which is not what culture is seducing you to play, is eudaimonia via Arte. That's step one. And you make the connection that you feel best when you do your best, not when you binge watch the latest Netflix show. And when you make that connection, then you start, we can get into details, but then you start saying, well, what do I need to do? Um, but I offer that, that until you make that distinction and until you get really clear and have the wisdom to, to say, this is the game I'm playing and this is how you play that game well. And yeah, I want all the you know, modern amenities that, it, that are nice to have, but that's a byproduct of my commitment to virtue, getting my consciousness right, my behavior right. And then I'll be a eudaimon who isn't a, I'm, I'm a hermit retreating here, but I'm also very engaged and active. Right. And that's the successful man or woman grounded in virtue day in and day out. So, again, that's high level. I'm happy to excited to go into detail. I, I'd love to go into detail on that. Now, the first thing that comes to mind is I, I hear all you people pushing back on who's the judge and jury on um, determining what, what what virtue and vice and wisdom actually are. You, period, unequivocally, you go do the work, turn off your Netflix, turn off whatever and go do the hard work of studying. And think about these things, if or not. But if you want to play the game that I think, and I believe I'm echoing all the great teachers, then make the decision that you're figuring out what vice and virtue is is more important than keeping track of whoever's doing whatever in the latest reality TV show or on the basketball court or whatever. You know, like that's the that's the game. And and then when you do that, I would offer you'll find what the positive psychologist found, which is. It doesn't matter what you study, whether it's ancient Greek wisdom, Stoicism, Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they're all saying the exact same thing. And they all come back to four, and the positive psychologists extend it to six, but I like four core virtues. Wisdom, knowing the game you're playing and how to play it well. Self-mastery, actually playing it well right now, right? And then courage, having the willingness to act in the face of fear, which is how the scientists define it, and love. Life is about more than just you. You want to give back to life. Now, that's, that's, that's it. I have goosebumps I say that. And I draw that. We have a compass we use. I draw that every morning. I recommit to that. You live with wisdom, self-mastery, courage, and love. And again, there's some more details to it. And how do you do that is a worthy question. But you will on your way, you know, and it's hard to debate that those are worthy and noble virtues. But run it through your own test and run your people you're seeing in, in, in the world through that test of virtue vis-a-vis vice, and then decide what world you want to be part of creating, and then go be that change that you want to see, right? Right. And how do you personally curate amount of time spent on each of these virtues? So I think that in our world we live in right now, a lot of people get caught up being busy, you know, doing rather than uh, pursuing excellence, pursuing their inner fulfillment. They just get caught in doing mindless things. So how do you personally balance all of those virtues in your life with, you know, running a very successful business with having two beautiful children and an amazing wife. Yeah. Um, uh, dynamically would, yeah. Be, uh, would be the answer to that. So there's no, I love Osho's wisdom that, that there's no such thing as static balance. There's no such thing as static equilibrium. It's like a tightrope walker. You're constantly adjusting. And I see the virtues as a compass, literally, you know, and, and sometimes you're pointing this way and this way. They're complementary. Important to remind ourselves of what's going on, but then we need to drill it into this moment. So it's this moment where we need to move from theory to practice to mastery. And this isn't an abstract conversation. This is a very real conversation. 
And ultimately, what arete meant for Aristotle and means for me is this moment. It's the true power of now. In this moment, did you close the gap? Because we always have that daimon over our shoulder whispering to us. And by the way, demon, which is the soul, the good soul, right? Demon is just the diminutive of daimon. So you've got vice and virtue whispering in your ear all day, every day. And the question is, which one are you going to listen to? And we help our coaches and our, our community members architect their days. We call it Carpe Diem, create masterpiece days. We spend two months on it. How do you do that? You know, and then how do you identify the roles you're playing in your life? We have a big three, energy, work, and love. Who are you at your best? What virtues do you embody? And what are you going to do today to embody them? Um, and then we're just, we're ruthless. It's every single day, Navy SEAL style, you know, earn your trident every day. You're never going to get there. You're never exonerated. Um, as my coach, Phil Stutz puts it, you're never, you're never going to get there. There's no there, there. Get to work in this moment. What's important right now? What's the highest and best use of my time right now? And do that. And then architect your day such that you don't need to make that decision. It runs algorithmically, which is what I do. That's one of the things I'm most proud of in terms of my own lifestyle and what I teach. Tell me about that because that that's where I was going with this is okay. Like, you know, this arete is dependent on you becoming present in this moment, being aware of, am I actually living in vice of virtue? And most people don't have that level of awareness, at least from my experience. Um, so how do we then begin to, to architect that day in such a way that allows us to maybe plan and schedule and, and prioritize and be present? Yeah. So then I'll, I'll briefly give context. So when I walk our coaches through our training, I start with eudaimonology, the study of a good soul. Then I talk about all the things we just talked about. Then I actually have a three-session module on heroology. And I challenge them to embrace the ancient Greek ideal of being a hero, which wasn't tough guy or killer or bad guys. It was protector. My whole mission is optimize equals optimist. The Latin optimist means best. He equals eudaimon equals hero. When you are at your best, you're a eudaimon and you're also a hero. And a hero has strength for two and their secret weapon is love. And they do the hard work to have that strength. So eudaimonology, heroology, and then I, I focus on what I call the big three times two. And I look at Stephen Covey, his roles and goals, right? And I look at Tony Robbins, same thing, categories of improvement. But when I used to do that, I'd get overwhelmed. I have so many roles and so many goals. How do I keep track? And right. literally, I remember just like popping my head with both. Freud, who I disagree with on almost everything else, says a good life is work and love. I thought that makes a lot of sense, work and love. If I can express myself fully in work and in love, I'm 80% there. But then I said, you got to have your energy dialed in because if your energy sucks and you can't get out of bed in the morning, good luck right. showing up fully in work and love. So, yeah, so then we say big three, energy, work, and love, and we obsess about it. To get certified in our program, you have to journal your big three every single day, 250 days out of our 300-day program. Once we introduce it, you got to do it. And then you take that and you say, okay, you times it by two, your identity, your virtues, your behaviors. So I ask energy-wise to help you get clarity on what virtue looks like for you. In general, let's go specific. Who are you? I'm looking at you and you're like Mr. Radiant Exemplar of Energy, which is what we challenge our, our coaches to be. And you clearly are. Okay, well, we want our coaches and our, our students to think, who are you at your energy best? Challenge your clients to think about that. I want them to see it. You know, for me, I train like a, a world-class athlete. I'm into Spartan races. That's my thing. So I want to see that. And then I want to ask, what virtues does that version of me embody? Well, I'm disciplined. I'm calm. I'm confident. I'm strong. I'm grounded. I'm consistent, right? There's, there's virtues. 
that are very real to that identity. Then I ask, and we they journal this every day, identity, I put athlete. And then right below that, I put those virtues. Then right below that, I say, what am I going to do today? What behavior will I engage in today? One behavior that will most powerfully represent those virtues and me being that identity. So we're not abstract, we're concrete today. Then I do the same thing for work and I do the same thing for a while. What's your identity work-wise? I'm a philosopher. My virtues are I'm prolific, I'm creative, I aspire to be wise, right? And then what am I going to do today? Well, I'm going to put in five, six, seven hours of deep work. Boom, very clear. And I got specific things I'm going to do, our talk and whatever else I'm going to do in the studio. And then I move on. Love, what am I going to do? Soulmate is my identity love-wise, playing on the eudaimon. My wife is my soulmate. My kid's my soulmate. You're my soulmate in this conversation. You, we're talking daimon to daimon right here. Right. Everyone who's engaged. So I want to show up with love, with connection, with you know energy and presence and encouragement, et cetera. What am I going to do today? I'm going to spend the 30 minutes I spent with my kids working out, AM, and I'm going to spend time with them in the PM. So anyway, energy, work, and love times identity, virtues, behaviors, repeat, repeat, repeat. Then we move into Carpe Diem where we get really technical in terms of how to create a masterpiece day. Um, but that's kind of some of the uh, architecture or scaffolding, if you will, to move from theory to practice. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Bioptimizers. Um, our favorite product, Mag Breakthrough, is still available to you, the muscle intelligence community, at 10%. This is a product that, if you're not already using it, Get it. It's it's always a great addition to any repertoire. Will help so many different issues in the body. There's a countless number of benefits to magnesium, and the reason I choose Mag Breakthrough above all is it actually has seven different chelates of magnesium, all of which have a different potential implication in the body. Um, so you're getting a full spectrum to allow you to relax and wind, turn off your active brain after a long and stressful day, certainly after a long and stressful workout, so you can wake up feeling rested, vibrant, and alert. I take a few capsules before bed to help with my recovery, and I'll probably wake up feeling like a champ and ready to go. You know, I train first thing in the morning, so what I do right before bed is incredibly important to me. And every time I take Mag Breakthrough before bed, I wake up feeling better. I just feel like I'm not, I don't need the coffee. I don't need the stimulants or pre-workouts. My body just feels to have uh, slept and recovered a little more effectively. Um, this is truly a fantastic product that, in my opinion, blows all the other magnesium products out of the water. Uh, and and Bioptimizers is just a reputable company. I know the owners quite well. I know the amount of time, energy, and sacrifice they put into research. And I'm a big fan of their their products and their company. So thanks to Bioptimizers, thanks to Matt Palant and Wade Lightheart, both previous guests on the show. Guys who not only are entrepreneurs, but they they walk the walk. These guys train every day. To be honest, they're pushing the envelope in many different ways, each of them kind of in their own way. So head over to magbreakthrough.com slash muscle. Use the code muscle10 to get hooked up with 10% off. Support our podcast sponsors because they support this podcast and we love to support you with credible, no cost to consumer information. You set your mind, body, and soul to something. Honestly, you can accomplish anything. And I literally just took what I learned from there and I applied it to my three battlefields of life. My battlefield, which is my internal struggle, my business field, which is his work, and my home field, which is with my family. And it is making me a better human being and I'm trying to make an impact on the world 
But the only way that I could do that is if I had to impact myself first. I had to, I had to, I had to go through the journey and make sure that it could be accomplished. Just like, you know, your journey of climbing in the fitness world. I don't want to hear about how awesome it is to be a Navy SEAL. The real story is how hard was it? How many reps did you do? How many, you know, when no one was looking, running into work at three o'clock in the morning, it's making that sacrifice that I think has defined me as a human. And I'm not going to lie to you, sir. I'm 50 years young. I'm, I tell everybody, and I know who I'm talking to here in the fitness world. I've said the same thing, no hurt. And I just told you, I talked to Andre Rush. Um, I'm going to be the next Jack LaLanne. I am going to be... 85 years old, in my tracksuit, pulling stuff with my teeth, juicing, and I'm going to live forever. And I'm going to instill positivity, um, drive, discipline, desire, and motivate people because no one did that for me. So I want to be used as that outlet to help people. What kept you going, right? So I know that it was hard. And like we all know hard, and, and hard is varying. There's varying levels of hard. And I'm curious... You know, I think you're going back to your dad. I'm sure that was a driving factor for you. The anger that was there, the rage. I often, and I'm sure you and I agree on this, is like, I believe everyone has that in them, but it's just, it's extinguished when we're young. It's like, your kids are told you're not allowed to be aggressive. You're not allowed to be, uh, you know, assertive. You have to be this, you have to live inside the proverbial box. So I'm curious what it was that allowed you to keep that flame going, to keep fanning that flame of aggression, of, of drive, of all these primal things that I think we all uh, in intentionally try to repress or society tells us we need to repress. But in reality, I think it's it's our gift. I tell everyone like that shadow, that anger, that rage is your gift when you learn how to control it. And so I'm curious how you learned how to control it to accomplish your goals. Well, what I, I there's two things that I did. And one, and I actually, Pedro's cool and our, our mutual friend is the one who helped me shift it. But the one thing that I did that, that fueled and raged uh, that fueled my rage was this. I was doing everything to prove people wrong, mm. which I came to terms about three years ago when I met Bedros. We met we met at a, an event and literally the minute we met, there was just this connection. So kind of like when I met my wife, I met my male version of my wife. We yes. had so much in common. And he looked at me and I remember I we were having a drink and he goes, dude, can I say something? I don't know, I don't know much about you. You know, he goes, I, I know who you are. He goes, and this is what he said, and I'll never forget you. Stop doing shit to prove people wrong and start doing shit to prove yourself right. And I, I'll tell you this right now, sir. It was like somebody hit a switch and I was like, oh, now that that rage and the anger and my father dying and you know not being told I was loved and I was worthless, I just took that energy, that rage, and I just channeled it obviously i don't know how but through the right direction and i used you know aggression can be a good thing being a savage that's the thing people mistaken passion for being a savage people go you man you're a savage no i'm not i'm the most passionate person in the room i'm grateful not greedy and what i do whenever something gets hard i don't look up at all the i love me walls i literally do a visual a visual drill i'm big into visualization and what I do is, I know this sounds silly, is I will literally look into the mirror. And I did this all through Buds. And I have like my one, three, five, and lifelong plan. And when I was going through Buds, I was like, everybody's going to tell me I can't do it. I'm, I'm not the fastest. I'm not the biggest. I'm not the strongest. So what I did was every night I would go in and I would literally visualize. I know this sounds so corny. 
a red line going across my face and it's just saying quitter. Now, people go, well, okay, what's that mean? Eventually, I would get married to my beautiful wife, which I did. Eventually, I would have two amazing children. And eventually, I would have to tell them that I was a quitter. I was a bell ringer. And I was like, right then and there, that's how I, that's how I decode that and say, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. Now, in the same sentence, failure is not an option is one of the silliest things I've ever heard, sir. I fail every day. I just don't quit. Right? I mean, I have whiteboards have, you know, for my family, my fitness, my finances and faith. And my goal in life is all I try to do is be 1% better. Obviously, the per in a perfect reality would be in every one of those categories. But you both know as well, you know as well as I do, um, there are days where you're up, there's days when you're down, life's going to throw curveballs at you. But I always do that. I do visualiz visualization drills and I'm really big on what we call AARs, after action reports. I do them with myself. I have notes with everything. I journal. Um, and But to go back to it, I just was doing it to prove everybody wrong. Everybody that said, you're not big enough, you're not fast enough, you're, my, you're not smart enough, that one bothers me a lot. Um, people used to tell me having a great attitude and giving everything you have isn't enough, and I disagree. Um, you know, I believe in the team analogy, trust, effort, attitude, mission. Trust takes time. Like you don't know me that well, but maybe if we hung out there, we would develop a trust effort. You know, this is what I tell you, you know, me, I don't give a hundred percent. Like if you and I give a hundred percent in the gym, you're throwing up a lot more weight than me. It's okay. But I'm going to give you everything I have and then give you more. Like if you and I, and again, when I work out with someone and you know, as well as I do, whenever you're training with someone it always turns into a friendly competition. I do it with Bedros. I've yep. done it with Jeff. I've done it with Michael Hearn. Yep. And this is what I tell people. This is all I want to know. When I leave that room, even at your level of fitness, I want you to go, damn, that guy came and he worked and he he made me go somewhere else. That's all it's about, right? And it's not a, it's not a dick measuring contest. Nope. It's a rite of passage showing you, listen, man, I get put out and I want to show you what I'm capable of. Right. And I want to do it in a smart fashion. But, you know, I want you to also know that I'm there though, because think about it. If the only thing I can do is get in the gym with you, if I come prepared and I'm, you know, and I know my exercises and my form's good and, and I'm putting out, you know, and you know my body weight, 205 pounds and percentage that I'm doing, well, right then and there, you're going to be like, that's going to leave an impression, right? Like that guy came to work versus imagine if I came to train with you late, right? Um, dehydrated, looking like shit, went out the night before drinking, right then and there, that's probably my one shot that I just lost to get to get to work out with you. Yeah. And that's how I approach everything in life, with everything I do. I call it aggressive competition with uh, a significant dose of humility, right? So like, I want healthy competition. I create this amongst my team. It's like, I want to, like, I'm going to try to kick your ass and I hope you try to kick mine. And that makes us better. And if you beat me, I'm shake your hand. And if I beat you, I'm sure you're going to shake mine. So it's the degree of like, and I want to go as hard as we both possibly can with a huge, a humble dose of humility. You know, that's that's the way I always frame. And I think I think people who rise to the top always realize it's not about knocking others down. It's like I want you to show up at your absolute best. And if you beat me, great. Next time, I'm going to get better. And I think most people don't take that mentality. You know, I'm not a sore loser. I'm a sore learner. Meaning. I don't lose because I'll never quit, yep. but 
I will learn from you. And I like, that's like, if I go and you give me advice, I'm going to come back and say, let's do it again. Right. And that's, and I always welcome challenge. I, yesterday I was doing a live and the guy was like, push up challenge right now. And I'm like, okay, right. do that because yes, I got, you know, you, I got time. Let's do it. And what did I do? I beat him. It's okay. And when people always ask me like, how many reps can you, I love that. How many, what's your max reps and bench? I'm like, this is what I always tell people, especially with pushups. I do one more. And they're like, what do you mean one more? I'll do one more than you. <laughs> they're like, how is that possible? That's just my mindset. I People compete with me all over the country. I get called out all the time. Let's do push-ups. Okay, let's do it. And here's what's so great about it. Eventually, I will be beat. And when I do get beat, I'm just going to go back to the, the drawing board. I'll remember who that person is. I'll respect the hell out of them. But I'll tell them, just like I tell you, I'm going to be back. Yeah. So I think what most people at home right now are thinking, Ray, is like, you're already there. You've, you've pushed through years and years of, you know, ultimately discovering what you're capable of and you're sustaining it. And what I really want to dig into is how you got there. So I'm going to guess when you first started training for buds that you weren't there yet. Like your, your fitness wasn't anywhere near where it is now. Um, and I'm curious what that mental sensation was like, what that physical sensation was like to just start taking the first step, right? And like, and when, when the first struggles did come up, when the self-doubt did come up, what was the, what was the dialogue going on in your mind? Well, it, it was, it, it, it was an internal struggle at the beginning because truth be told, I was not a good swimmer. Obviously you want to become an ABC, you have to learn how to swim. Truth be told, I'm still not, I can swim and I power through the water, right? You know, as well as I do, form is key. Mm. I literally threw the fucking form method out the window and just like, okay, I got to swim four miles. I'm going to swim four miles. <laughs> How did it look at the beginning? It was probably the most humbling thing I've ever been through. The most uncomfortable experience I've ever been to when I'm watching, you know, I was never a big guy, but I've always been a fit guy. When you're like, oh, you got to do the, you know, the max push-ups, max sit-ups, max pull-ups, a run and swim. And then and do that. I got my ass handed to me, but, and the internal dialogue was, this is what I said. Well, shit, you can't be any worse because I was horrible, you know? Um, and that's what I think a lot of people, that's what this, this decides which route you're going to take, right? I'm looking at two screens. The one that goes, holy shit, when I first started off, I only did 52 push-ups. And then I could say, well, shit, I'm never going to make it. Or what I did was the internal dialogue was, okay, 52 push-ups. How am I now going to get to 100 push-ups? And the same thing happened. I read, you know, we didn't have all the Stu Smith books. We didn't have all the Jeff Nichols books. We didn't have all the stuff. You couldn't go up and ask a Navy SEAL questions. They'd be like, beat it, Roach. So uh, I found the next best thing I could. And I asked for external help. I was at a, my first duty station. There were Navy divers. And, you know, the, the program is similar, but obviously one's a little bit more, not as strenuous. But I was like, hey, guys, I want to be a Navy SEAL. And they're like, oh, Navy SEAL, blah, blah. And I took the ridicule and I took the beating and I became what's called a mud pup where they, you know, they pick one of the one or two of the best people that come in and let you work under their under their realm and teach you the ways. <laughs> but the dialogue, it was it was fucking horrible. Um, I, I was literally um, and there was a lot of times where I was self-sabotaging. Um, telling myself, you know, maybe you should just listen to everybody else. Maybe you should just do this. Maybe you should do that. But then as I looked around, I noticed that there were people that had been in the military twice as long as me. And all they did was bitch and moan. And all they did was complain about how miserable they were. 
But then when I asked them, what were they doing to make things better? They gave me a look of like, they were appalled that I asked them. I was like, wait a minute. So you're not happy with where you are. You're not, you're not happy with your fitness. You're not happy with your mindset. But in the same sentence, when I ask you a question, you're not doing anything to fix it. And then I was like, well, I'm not going to be that guy. Right. I have established that I, and the first thing about, you know, being humble is know, know what you suck at, right? Know what you suck at. And the thing is, is whatever I suck at, it's the first thing I attack. I look for things that allow me the opportunity to explore the brink of my level of attention. I think there's value in this. I noticed that my learning capacity, again, this is subjective, seems to increase post um, exposure to these things. Does that seem possible or like something you've experienced? For what to increase your what capacity? My, my ability to, well, focus, my ability to retain information and learn. So example, if I know I have to write, read, retain, and recall, I'll actually go and do a mountain bike or I'll go and do something where I need a high degree of vigilance and you know I'm winding between trees doing some off-roading stuff and I come back and I feel like my brain is almost you know, to use like hyperplastic, right? I feel like my brain is, is ready to adapt. Does that seem like something you've experienced? Yeah, that's a really, I like your description of that and the way you describe that. Uh, I mean, the full state really does unlock a lot of capacities we are normally dormant within us because we, we very rarely are using our full capacities in any moment. I mean, we're, um, because we're, we're so divided within and, and uh, there's also lots of things, external, external barriers as well. If you can really get into that state, it really does pay uh, dividends, you know, it really does compound its value uh, over time because you're uh, you're putting your all into something. You're you're going all in, you know, cognitively. Yeah, and so that's a really special special state. That's why so many people treasure it. I don't know if you've ever come across the work of Stephen Kotler. Yeah, very much. Yep. Okay, awesome. Um, yeah, um, a good friend of mine, and I love what they're doing with their full research collective and how they're, you know, training people. I was, I was a coach. I was a flow coach there for a little bit before oh, I branched out on my own. Yeah. Yeah. I've read some of me high chick, semi high stuff as well. I think he was kind of the godfather of his flow state and obviously read, I think all Steven's books. I think it's just phenomenal. And coming back to something you said there, you mentioned it twice now and you said internal distraction mm-hmm. or some iteration of it twice. Tell me about that. What's, what, what's that, what's going on there when people are internally distracted? Cause Typically, when I'm thinking about distraction, like I'm sure you kind of corrected me on, like I'm usually focused on external distraction, focused on all the things going on around me. And I hadn't even considered this reality that maybe many people, and probably including myself without noticing, are, are undergoing some type of cognitive distraction. So what's what what's going on there? Well, we have a, a particular brain network uh, called the default mode brain network and uh, that, that really is constantly uh, beneath the surface. Uh, having all sorts of ruminations and thoughts of the future and ruminations about the past. And then we have other networks, brain networks like the executive attention network, which is associated with our ability to focus on the outside world, to really concentrate on on uh, on something external to us. Often when we're trying to concentrate on something, this chatter from the imagination network, I call it the imagination network, but the default mode brain network, is distracting us because it's it's feeding us inputs that aren't actually in existence in the world. And and they can all sometimes get us contaminated. So the more that you can see reality clearly and the more that you can silence that uh, default mode network in certain contexts can also be very powerful for creativity to engage in that imagination network. But it's all about the right place, right time. 
right? So talking to you right now, I need to suppress the heck out of my imagination network or else we're not going to get this interview done. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm going to have a hard time focusing because I'm getting so many distractions from thoughts about what am I going to have to do tomorrow or like, oh my God, I regret what I did that when I was in college, you know, or, oh, this thing, I don't know, whatever, just, you know, all the things that our brain constantly computes for us, you know, automatically and uh, without our, our, our permission. <laughs> Can you define the default mode network or just give a brief explanation of what it is? Go to the brain behind me and point out the brain regions, but uh, it's uh, in the medial surface of the brain, prefrontal cortex, medial surface, communicating with areas that represent our sense of self. So it has a lot to do with self-representation and and projecting and our own selves into the world, into the future. Like when we're imagining the future, we usually have ourselves at the center of that, you know. And uh, and this, these brain regions are really uh, really important uh, to play a role in that in in, uh, in a network sort of way. Yeah, you know, they, they're team players. So it's effectively how we view ourselves with 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 regards to the world. Well, it has to do with self representations. Like when you ask questions like "Who am I?" You know, some of these brain regions will be active. You know, it involves a lot of sociality. So our ability to, for perspective taking and compassion do come from that. Because if you think about it, compassion requires a leap of imagination or perspective taking requires a leap of imagination. I have to try to imagine what in the world are you thinking? Um, and, and we do that by thinking, well, how would myself think, you know, under these situations, you know, and how would I? So it is a very self-focused network, though. It's funny, it's paradoxical. It's self-focused, but also is what enables us to have compassion and, and empathy for and uh, perspective taking for others. Yeah. So it's compl- neuroscience is complicated. Interesting. Um, so Scott, more recently in your work, at least as far as my observations, you started writing about kind of this modern interpretation of self-actualization. And I'd love to have you walk us down that path because it, you know, it seems as though in your theory that it, it's evolving as far as um, what that actually may look like in, in modern day humans. The idea of self-actualization goes back many, many years in human history. So the idea of self-realization, you know, like the gurus in India talked about that for many, many years. When psychologists came, came around and then uh, especially the humanistic psychologist, Abraham Maslow in the in this 50s, 60s, he started to think of self-actualization as, you know, what is it? to become all you're capable of becoming, what is um, your greatest creative potential. Towards the end of his life, he really thought about it differently, and especially after he had a heart attack, he started to face a sense of mortality and start to realize that you know life is very finite, and and what a real goal of self-actualization is, is, is self-transcendence, actually, to be able to transcend ourselves and be able to put things out there in the world and realize them in a way that can help future generations. So I think the idea of self-actualization is more tied, especially in the kind of conceptualizations I'm trying to put out in my book, Transcend, is more tied to our ability to become what we're capable of becoming so that what is automatically good for us is automatically good for the world as well. I love that. And I think a lot about, I'm a dad, and I think a lot about um, breaking cross-generational unconscious patterns. And, And so... You know, oftentimes what you were taught by your parents, you're then going to be take on as your belief systems and then pass it on to your children. And and so some of those things become really, really uh, effective and useful, whereas other things become less effective as the species evolves, right? As we evolve as people, uh, even as, even seeing limitations in the things you were taught in your belief systems. And 
I spent a lot of time really contemplating the utility of all these belief systems that I've been imparted with, whether that be from my family or from my um, you know experience as a child or from social social society, all those things, and like trying to think through like okay, which one of these have value and which one of these should I eliminate? It sounds like we're on the same page there with like, you have so much control or not control, influence over what kind of gets taken from your learnings and then passed on to subsequent ones. It sounds like it's all this hopefully progressive narrowing of toward a worthy ideal, right? Progressive narrowing toward something that's valuable to push the human species forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you've, it sounds like you've thought a lot about these issues yourself. I do, man. I do. Yeah, that's why I said I'm a fan. Like, I'm listening to your stuff. I think about these these topics a lot because ultimately that's why we're here, right? That's my thought is, like, why else am I here other than to push the human species forward in whatever way possible? So now that you've identified flow so clearly for kind of a long time and an athlete or uh, an extreme performer can identify that, hey, I, I, I'm approaching this state or I know that I've been in this state before. Or have, have you had any uh, accounts of people like being able to acknowledge they're in it and be present and conscious of the fact that they're in it? Or is this the type of thing that you realize after it's over, you're like, whoa, I was just in some, in, uh, some zone there? So this is one of the big differences. So flow is very trainable. Right. This this is this is the work we've done at the Flow Research Collective. We're very good at it. And the state itself is very trainable. It is uh and it's not a binary, right? It's a four stage process. So flow is you're not in the zone or out of the zone. There's a four stage cycle you move through to get into flow and out of flow. Um and you can't really skip steps, or it doesn't appear that you can skip steps and there's precise kind of changes in the brand at, at each level. The point uh, is that uh, flow states, they have triggers as well. Preconditions lead to more flow. So if you're interested in more flow, that's sort of your toolkit. And knowing where in the flow cycle to deploy which trigger starts to make things reliable and repeatable. And yes, people who are better at this stuff can go, oh, wow, I'm, I'm in flow. So let me give you an example. I'm a skier, right? I'll be in flow all the time when I'm skiing on the chairlift. I might drift out of it depending on, you know, what kinds of conversations I'm having. But it seems like people who are really good at it can recognize when there's in the zone and really know how to stretch it out and deepen it. So there's certain triggers you can utilize when you're actually in flow. They're better used in flow than trying to get into the state. They're better used to extend the state a little bit. And there's ways to do that as well. So yeah, that it but you are uh, you are uh that was one of the things that was tricky. So yeah, I'll, I'll say this and then I'll, I'll go and come back to this comment. So one of the things that's tricky with people is usually the beginning when people are in a flow state for the first couple of times, they're like stone teenagers, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, look, look at the sky. Look at the moon. They don't realize this is a peak performance state. It's You can make it reliable and repeatable. It's generally rarer than, than a lot of other states and you want to use it, right? You don't want to, you don't want to like just sort of like flit it away and like drift away. So um, learning to recognize when you're in flow without knocking yourself out of the state can take some practice. De it's definitely, you know, it's definitely something you have to learn how to do to experience a little bit. Yeah, I've certainly experienced that. I do a lot of downhill mountain biking, and what you know, when you're whizzing between trees and you're like millimeters away from death, you're like, 
there's definitely moments where you're like, oh yeah, I know where I am now. And I, I feel like I can speed up. Like I'm like, it's like the Jedi, the force is with you kind of scenario. You just, you just body just knows what to do. You just know where to go. Well, so a couple of things. One, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, you are sped up, but dopamine and norepinephrine among their many attributes, uh, they enhance both fast twitch muscle response and pattern recognition. So mm -hmm. the ability to see and detect patterns and signal and noise. So one of the reasons everything is is sped up is, is for those those reasons. Though when uh, there's dopamine in our system, time speeds up anyways. One of the fastest ways to to influence time perception. Would you be willing to share the four steps, or do you want people to go and pick up the books? The and the flow cycle. Yeah. Oh sure, I'm happy to talk about that. This research originally was done by Herbert Benson, a Harvard Harvard cardiologist. He wanted to rename flow the breakout principle to go along with his relaxation response because, like, that wasn't a bad enough name. Now we're going to try to rename. But anyways, luckily that one didn't happen, but the biochemistry was really good. We've been working to try to publish on this as well and, and advance a little bit. But the front end of a flow state, there is a struggle phase. So flow is essentially what happens after we've learned a bunch of new information, sort of chunk that information, putting together all those new chunks together as one like bigger action plan schema, larger chunk kind of thing. But you still have to learn all that those skills sort of individually before they can sort of come together and flow some struggle. That's what we're doing. And, and this could be, we could be talking about athletics, right? This, you know, you're learning how to swing a baseball bat. There's a million, you know, you step through the pits, keep your eye on the ball, use your hips, follow through on the swing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the, a lot of those things are learned individually. They're all put together, right? They'll come together and flow. This could be me as a writer, right? Writing is a very flowy experience, but the front end of a book, not a very flowy experience. I'm doing tons of research. I'm making phone calls. I'm reading books. I'm reading papers. I got diagrams all over my office. It's not flowy once it starts to come together. So that's stage one is a struggle phase. And what's really important to know for people about the struggle phase is frustration is a built-in part of the process. You are absolutely going to be frustrated and struggle. In fact, the research shows, in a sense, the more frustrated you get, the better it is. Um, there's a bunch of different reasons that have to do with how like the sub the unconscious mind processes information, but the more you overload it, and we know working memory will hold seven items max, and most of us tap out after four concepts. So if you're trying to learn anything complicated, you're going to get frustrated. You're going to overload working memory. And uh, that's actually a sign you're moving in the right direction. So most people get frustrated and think I'm doing something wrong, bad person. You start judging yourself. All those all those programs start running. And, and this work is actually a sign that you're moving exactly the right direction. You want to get to the point right where your head feels like it's about to explode and then take your mind off the problem. It's a release phase. It's a Literally, you just want your conscious brain to pass the problem over to your subconscious. What works best is low-grade physical exercise. So this is not going to the gym and going hard. This is going for a long walk or 20-minute walk in nature. This is gardening or building model airplanes or anything that sort of just gets your body a little bit involved so you can get a little bit out of your head. The, th the third stage itself is the flow state. And on the back end of the flow state, there's a recovery phase. Flow is biologically expensive state to produce. So there's recovery on the back end that's required. And because flow significantly accelerates learning, 
um, studies by the U.S. Department of Defense, 240 to 500% above baseline for skills acquisition um, and flow among soldiers. Uh, so you really, you need, going to need Delta wave sleep, right? For, to pass anything you've learned in flow, not only do you have to just like, you need an active recovery protocol in place, but you also are going to need a good night's sleep on the back end to actually gain the benefits of flow. So you mentioned, you know, kind of special forces type people. Um, are they using this protocol repeatedly to try to acquire skills more reliably? So, uh, this studies actually wasn't done on uh, special forces. It was done on uh, marksmen. I want to say target was target acquisition shooters. We have uh, we have done work with uh, special forces, but no, I don't know what you know about the uh, special forces community. But sleep is a major problem, huge, huge, huge problem, and recovery is a huge problem. In fact, most of the a lot of the work that we do with peak performers tends to be on the recovery side. It's the piece that so many peak performers tend to get wrong. We often have to start there. I'd love to have actually talk about that because you're right. I mean, some of the guys I work with are burning the candle at both ends. I'm going to bed at midnight. I'm waking up at five, taking as many cups of coffee as I need to get through. I can only imagine that's interfering with your ability to get in the flow. Have you seen oh, yeah. are stimulated? Yeah, no. The, the research is unbelievably clear. We, we humans need seven to eight hours of sleep a night. Like, period. It's not like there's there's really almost no debate on this. I always tell like hard chargers, you have to use your brain at all. You're out of your mind. And I was here's the great example. The Wonder Rig, which is what they give pro football players, is available for free online. So one of the shorter intelligence tests. Take it one day after you've slept seven, eight hours, and then take it two weeks later after you slept four hours and are powering along on coffee and see how many IQ points dumber you are. And like, that'll end that. It's also, so there's a bunch of stuff going on, but the biggest problem, the biggest problem that people don't understand is when you are running on lack of sleep, your brain is much more likely to treat almost every situation you're in as a threat. You're going to overproduce cortisol. You're going to overproduce norepinephrine. There are massive penalties for this. There's all kinds of physiological penalties too. It's really bad for your system. But the more norepinephrine in your, in your system, you'll you'll lock yourself out of flow. You'll block learning. You shut down creativity. So the more fear, nervousness in your system, the more logical and linear, tried and true, safe, secure, what worked a million times before, solutions the brain will It does, shuts down the entire upper portion of your creative brain by like just not getting out of sleep for those reasons. It's really, really a, a, a kooky thing um, you don't want to mess with. How much is unconscious competence a part of achieving flow? Like uh, you spoke about bringing all these pieces together. Is that is that ultimately what we're trying to achieve is this concept well, of like... It, it turns out flow... So there's been a bunch of different arguments about where does flow come from? Where did it evolve from? What's its purpose? And there's a um, there's like six or seven different answers, and they're all probably right. Um, but one of the answers that appears to be right is flow is literally a sign of mastery. So you're, you mentioned unconscious competence. Flow is the sign that you've developed competence. Why is it when we were certain skill, it's good to know when you've mastered a skill. So the thing for, especially from an evolutionary purpose, is you don't want to like, you know, 
go try to hunt down, uh, you know, a tiger until you've mastered the spear kind of thing. So it's good to know when when those skills are gone. So there's some thinking that says, flow is actually the sign of mastery um, and that unconscious competence. We're all facing a very small number of similar challenges. The human mind, human condition, the way society shapes us, oftentimes confines us into a box. And that box ultimately is what forms our beliefs, it reforms our identity, it reforms uh, our you know, outcomes ultimately. So I wanted to, to personally take a different approach. Rather than thinking of like goal setting, like what are, the, what are all the new things I can do? I started having a conversation with myself it's like, well, we all have 24 hours in a day. We're awake for 16. We have a 16-hour uh, window to make the most of what we can. And so I said, okay, what do I need to do to become a more effective human in everything I do? So I'm looking for these high leverage items, right? So like you could say, oh, I can go do a workout. Does that make me a more effective human, right? So it's not just the event itself. It's the downstream effects of the event, right? Does that make sense? So if I had to go do a weight workout, a weight workout could be done, Cole, this is a perfect example, a weight workout could be done that is only a weight workout. And I get the benefit of the weights, maybe I build some muscle, maybe I burn some calories. Weight workout can also be done in a way that has residual long-term benefits to improving character, to improving mindset, to improving confidence. Everyone agree with that? What's the difference? The, the mental framing that you carry with it, right? Just like, like we talked about goal, like climbing the mountain, with a shitty attitude and a, and, a, and a victim attitude versus one that's empowered. So if I want to become a more effective human, I have to start thinking on this high level on how can I take this thing I'm already doing and learn to experience the, or, or, or extrapolate the full benefit of this experience or from this experience so that it not only makes me better in this moment or I get the benefit of the experience, but I, I transcend beyond. So I created a list of 21 things that I thought I could implement into my life right now that would make me a more effective human. You guys want to hear them? Anybody interested in hearing those? Good. Yeah. So I think this applies to everybody. And I can walk through them and I'm not going to spend too much time on each one because I want to get to the time you respect every time. But I thought it'd be very relevant for us to walk through them. And I, and I stayed within the, well, some of them, I stayed within the confines of what we're doing, the training stuff, but I also did some things significantly outside of it. And I'd suggest if you guys are interested, I'd consider taking, taking notes. So in no particular order, right? I'm going to start with the things that are most relevant to our group because it's important. If I want to become a more effective human, I want to pay attention to my cardiovascular health and endurance. Why? Nothing to do with cardio. I can do with fat burning, right? Even though maybe fat burning is, makes me a more effective human, right? If I'm leaner, I'm a more effective human. That's on the list too. Cardiovascular fitness improves your ability to recover. It improves your ability to sleep. It improves your ability to be resilient to stress. It improves your ability to, to uh, utilize nutrients. So it's not just like the thing itself, it's all the other side benefits. And I know a 5% increase in cardiovascular fitness could mean a 50% increase in effectiveness as, human, as a human. That's a high leverage item, right? Let's add that to the list. So number two on the list, I have strength. You guys will all acknowledge strength is never a weakness, right? Just to quote Mark Bell, strength is always a good thing. It's a high leverage item. I want to be strong as a human because weakness can be a detriment, right? Being a weak human doesn't make you better. 
being strong can absolutely make you better. As physically strong, but what is what else comes with being physically strong, right? If I if I see somebody and I know they're physically strong, what do I automatically know about? There's there's some automatic unconscious or conscious assumptions I can make, right? I could probably assume that person's pretty courageous, right? Why why would I say courageous? Well, they're willing to get under some some load. They're yeah, they're disciplined, right? What else can we think about them? What else can we automatically assume? Yeah, they're a hard worker. Yeah, these are all these are all very likely. Are they certain? No, fearless, focused. Yeah, dedicated. Right. So there's a lot of things that we can assume just by saying, "Hey, I've increased my strength." I'll tell you what, I've been training this young athlete, and this really was one of the primary um, kind of catalysts for me having this conversation. He said, Ben, I want to compete in September. He's never competed before. And so I said, okay, well, what would I want this guy to do if I wanted him to do well in his competition and be a more effective human? Because I know that's his objective. He doesn't care about competing. He just wants to compete to set a goal. So it's like, okay, what would we, what would be the highest leverage thing we could get out of this, this competition if we know the end result of the competition really doesn't matter? I think for a lot of you guys, this body transformation is probably very similar. That is, is the end result the goal? No, it's the person you become in the process. So as you're thinking all these, these variables of how to become a more effective human, take that mental framing. Where you end up at the end of this time together is effectively irrelevant. The greatest thing you take out of our time together is the, the person you become in the process, right? So the mental framing has to become, am I leaning in when it's difficult? Am I showing courage when it's hard? Am I developing my discipline and character Right? Am I showing dedication and commitment? This is the ultimate win that comes out of this coaching program for anyone, should you choose to take that on. Right, But the mental framing has to be there first. You can't end up at the end of the transformation and go, yeah, I got a good physical transformation, but I'm not happy. Right? If that happens, whose fault is that? It has to be yours. Right? It's like, yeah, I got the result, but it actually happens. I got the result, but I'm not happy. Yeah, no shit, you're not happy. So taking that mindset of going, okay, in this moment, when I'm going to have to wake up in the morning and do my cardio, when I'm going to have to eat the food that maybe, you know, whatever else is pizza, I can eat chicken. When I have to do the, you know, I don't know, I'll do the workout. I get to do the workout, right? What is the mindset you're going to take with you? The third one, which I, I, I briefly mentioned already, but worth mentioning again, is uh, getting lean, being very lean. Being lean is a huge advantage as a human not just because you're more attracted to the opposite sex, but because your body functions more effectively, your hormones are better, your strength is going to be better, your recovery is going to be better, your estrogen is going to be lower. So being lean is always an advantage. So if I want to be a more effective human, I want to be lean. I want to be as lean as I possibly can, right? So that's another one to add to that list. So I, the next one I wrote is a, is a broad stroke one. It's optimal health, which means well-functioning body, well-functioning mind, well-functioning organs, and well-functioning cells. I always go down all the way to the level of the cell. The next one I would say, if I want to become an effective human, is I should probably think about meditation. And I just did a hour-long uh, talk on meditation prior to this, and all the benefits that come with meditation. So I'll, I'll spare you guys the, the long talk of meditation. Of course, we can chat about it if anyone chooses. But the benefits go so far beyond, you know, simply what people imagine to be the benefits of meditation. There's so much value in simply 
becoming present in the moment and eliminating the the racing mind and being present in the body and sensations, the hearing and seeing and feeling, being present in those in those emotions or those sensations runs very deep in its benefit. Oh, this is a big one. So I want to be a more effective human. I want to have intentional silence and solitude. How many of you, the answer, how many of you have a practice of solitude or silence? Because I cannot do things and I can like be by myself in, and have nothing on, but like being intentional about how I'm going to approach that and just be like, I'm not, I'm going to sit here and not do anything. Right. That's an interesting approach. Like for me, I really attempt to focus in on my senses. So like, yeah. So it's like, I'm really going to, I'm really going to experience the sensation of the moment. And that's just like, it's, it's the, it's the hearing, it's the seeing, it's like, at the, the vastness of the moment, which is an interesting um, thought, isn't it? It's like this exact instance is so rich in experience, so rich in sensation, so rich in information, so rich in, in beauty, if you just are willing to sit in it and experience it. Does that make sense, everybody? Like in every moment, there's so much beauty in what you can hear and what you can feel in your body and through your heartbeat and what you can see if you slow down enough to take it all in. But we're usually so busy, we miss the nuance of the instant. And the reason I think this is relevant to you guys, the reason I share this stuff, is because imagine you take that level of, of focus and acuity into your workouts, and you, you, you intentionally become present inside of your body, deeply experience what you're experiencing in your body. Your ability to go further and further and further ultimately not stop because of distraction or you know discomfort um, becomes a huge opportunity thanks for listening to the muscle intelligence podcast for full episode guides with important takeaways and bonus resources head over to muscleintelligence.com learn if you enjoy the show and find value in the content please subscribe share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who would benefit from this content Leave us a review and support our sponsors. You can see the full list of show sponsors, discounts, and get exclusive muscle intelligence deals at muscleintelligence.com slash resources. To join our private community and get VIP access to my master classes, upcoming muscle camps, and other resources that we don't post anywhere else, head to muscleintelligence.com slash community. Most of all, thank you very much for your trust, for your time, and most importantly, for supporting health and fitness in this world. Enjoy your day. I look forward to seeing you here next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.